Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Hey, Vanguard family and uh, any visiting friends that might be joining us online. Pastor Kerry here. Boy, it's hard to believe, isn't it? And somewhat disappointing that we're back to doing online videos again. I know I was hoping we wouldn't have to do this again this year, especially after we were able to reopen on Father's Day and start having public worship services. However, uh, I think it's important to remember that many churches still have not been able to reopen this year since closing back in March. And so because of our size and where we are, you know, we're, I'm just so thankful. We were able to reopen for a few weeks and worship with each other, fellowship with each other, and study the Word of God together. So uh, I'm confident, though, we'll be able to do this uh, again soon uh, at uh, Freedom Middle School. And so uh, let's just continue to pray. Let's continue to trust the Lord and His timing. And uh, let's continue to seek His face on what He wants to teach us with this coronavirus pandemic. And I'm confident we'll be able to worship together again soon. My goal with these home Bible study videos is, is to enable you to spend about 30 minutes interacting over God's Word with your spouse or your family or your friends on Sunday morning when we would normally gather for worship. You know, similar to what I did this past spring, I, I'm going to provide some short Bible study videos each week and some discussion questions and a PDF handout that's available for download on our website. And so uh, before we get started, I want to really encourage you and urge you to uh, download that PDF off our website, print a copy off, uh, make sure you've got your Bible with you and something to take notes with. That's going to enable you to get the most out of this content, which will then enable you to grow in your walk with the Lord. Well, uh, if you need to pause the video, by the way, and go grab those things, your Bible and the handout and a pen, go ahead and pause the video. I'll be right here. I'll wait for you, and then you can come back. We'll, we'll get started. Well, uh, before we get started, let's begin with prayer, and let's ask the Lord to help us understand His Word uh, as we open it up and apply it to our hearts. Would you, would you join me? Heavenly Father, you know that we're disappointed that we've had to suspend our services again, and we so enjoy being able to gather together as a church and to fellowship with each other, see each other's faces, encourage one another, and, and to sing praises to you. But we're confident and we're trusting that you are going to work all things together for good, for our good. And Lord, we praise you because we also know you are able to redeem all things in our lives for the glory of your name, including the extra time that we've had at home this year due to this pandemic. Father, please, would you protect the next few minutes of study time that we have in your word from distractions so we can hear what you want to say? And Lord, would you sensitize our hearts to your spirit and your words so that we can hear it? And Lord, if there's anyone watching or listening who does not have a personal relationship with your son, Jesus Christ, would you would you please use this, this Bible study video to draw them into a relationship with you? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, 
Uh, I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Mark chapter 1. To Mark chapter 1. And uh, after, as you turn there, let me just say that after giving this a lot of thought and prayer over the past week, I, I've decided to pause our Ephesians series that we were doing at Freedom Middle School again and to begin a new series that I'll do just for these online videos in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, I'm simply calling this series The Obedient Servant. And as long as we're asked to be home by our governor and not allowed to do worship services, uh, public worship services, I'll keep doing verse-by-verse -verse exposition on Mark for us. So uh, as you turn there as well and you get ready with your handout, let me give you some background on the Gospel of Mark. Uh, it, it is written by a man named John Mark. Now John Mark was the cousin of Barnabas. He traveled with Paul and Barnabas in the book of Acts on their church planting journeys. And uh, John Mark, you might remember, was the center of a heated dispute between Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 15. But John Mark also ministered to Paul towards the end of Paul's ministry, and towards the end of the New Testament in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, it appears there was some reconciliation that took place, and uh, Paul thanks, uh, thanks the Lord for John Mark ministering to him while he was sitting in prison waiting to die. Now, because John Mark was too young to serve with Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry, it's widely accepted that Mark wrote this gospel by recording the emphatic, energetic stories that a gray-haired Peter told him. And so uh, imagine Mark as being sort of the secretary who's listening to Peter tell him and recount his experiences and the Holy Spirit working through Peter and working through Mark is how we get the Gospel of Mark. And so uh, Mark chapter 1 begins with John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus to come uh, by baptizing and proclaiming a message of repentance. Next, what we see happen in the next uh, couple sections of John, excuse me, of Mark chapter 1, I almost said John Mark chapter 1, um, what we see happening is uh, Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist, and then he is sent out into the wilderness to be prepared for his earthly ministry. Jesus then ministered in Judea for about a year, and we know that from uh, John chapter 1 through 4, and then Jesus came and ministered in Galilee, which you'll see in the text we're going to study today. And so, having said that, if you would follow along with me in your Bibles as I read Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, that's John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Okay, let's stop there. Here's the first point on your outline. Number one is this. The true gospel... The true gospel calls sinners to repentance and faith. The true gospel calls sinners to repentance and faith, not just faith. And this is really important because of a lot of the teaching that is out there in the world today that likes to take repentance out of the gospel. Uh, allow me to explain. Uh, notice in verse 14 where it says that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming. 
Uh, the word in the original text there for proclaiming is the word from which we get preaching. It's, it's keruson. Uh, it comes from a Greek word which means to herald or to preach. Uh, the verb to herald was also a noun in the first century for heralds. Heralds were messengers sent by kings to another land or country to deliver a message to the neighboring land or country. And so what was the message that Jesus is delivering here as a herald, as a preacher? Well, simply put, believe in the gospel of God. Now, the gospel in the original text, the word used for gospel simply means good news. It just means good news. In fact, you see that in some of the other Bible translations that you may have. Well, what's the good news? Simply put, the good news is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and three days later conquered death by resurrecting himself from the grave. And anyone who repents of their sin and by faith through grace uh, trusts in Christ alone for their salvation, they can have forgiveness and peace with God and eternal life and so much more. And so uh, when Mark says Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, he's saying that like a herald arriving in a town with a message from a foreign king, Jesus was saying, Heary, heary, good news, good news. I have good news. Repent and believe in the gospel. Okay? Now, let's talk about this word repent. What does that mean exactly? And I know those of you who have been coming to Vanguard for a while have heard me mention it several times. Repent comes from the Greek word metaneo. Uh, it's used 23 times in the New Testament and literally means a change of mind that leads to a complete turnabout in someone's life. Its Hebrew counterpart used in the, in the Old Testament shows up over a thousand times. And it means to turn in the opposite direction and return back to God. So it's a, it's a change in direction. I like to define repentance as a change of the mind that leads to a change in the heart. It would, it would be like driving down the interstate with your spouse or a friend in the wrong direction. And, and then your, your co-pilot, your navigator, who's, whoever's riding shotgun... Uh, says, hey, you're going the wrong way, and you need to turn around. Well, the scriptures describe all of us as being born going the wrong way, born with an inherited sin nature that wants what we want instead of what God wants. We want to go our own way, make our own choices, and have control of our own lives. And that's called sin. It's, it's rebelling and running from God. We're all born doing it. However, if... We will, through repentance and faith, turn around and come back to God and ask for his forgiveness and trust in what Christ did on the cross for us. We can have forgiveness and a relationship with God. Now, let's, let's pause the video here, and I'd like you to talk about this discussion question that I have on your handout. It's, it's simply this. When someone apologizes to you, how do you know whether they are sincere? When someone apologizes to you, how do you know if they are sincere? Talk about that or think about that for a minute, and I'll be right back.
Well, you, you probably talked about or thought about in your home that when someone is sincere about their apology for wronging you, they, um, you'll, you'll be able to see it in their nonverbals, like their facial expression, their emotions, their tone of voice. Uh, a couple more signs of sincerity that uh, I was able to think of myself are the intent to change and the desire to make things right. Let's say, for example, the offense was uh, the other person took money from you that was yours, they stole from you. You would obviously want them to prove the sincerity of their apology by paying you back. I mean, because any sinner could say, I'm sorry all day, but keep the money, right? And, and you would say, then you're not really sorry. So the, 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 the paying of the money back is what's called restitution. And that's an important part of repentance as well. And so um, one way that the Lord knows we are sincerely sorry about our sin is repentance. It, in his infinite wisdom, I think one reason the Lord included repentance in the gospel is that he knows our sinful hearts are capable of apologizing for sin we, we honestly don't regret. And, and, and let's just be real, we've all done it as kids and even probably as adults where we've said we were sorry for something we weren't really sorry for. And the Lord sees that. He knows that. So allow me to just, I want to unpack real quickly here three facets of repentance. Three, three parts or characteristics of repentance that we can see in the New Testament. And so here's letter A. Repentance that saves someone from their sin, first of all, is mental. That's letter A. It's mental. In Luke chapter 18, we see a great example of this. And that's where Jesus tells a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector who went to the temple to worship the Lord. Jesus, excuse me, the Pharisee compared himself to everyone else less righteous than he, or at least less righteous than he thought he was, thought they were, excuse me. However, the tax collector in the story compared himself to God, who, and he did so, when he did so, the tax collector could not even lift his eyes to the Lord because he felt so convicted about his sin. And so he says, the tax collector in Luke chapter 18, be merciful to me and I'm a sinner, and he beats his chest. And Jesus says at the end of the parable, the tax collector agreed with God's assessment of him, and because of that, the tax collector walked away justified. Next, genuine repentance, gospel repentance, is emotional. It's, it's letter B, it's emotional. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says a genuine repentance produces a grieving over the fact that we've sinned against the Lord, that we've let the Lord down, and how our sin has affected others or hurt others. And so there's a, there's a sense of grief or sadness that we should feel. Uh, the person who sincerely repents is heartbroken about their rebellion, and they, they want to make a commitment to change. They desire to change so that hopefully, with the Lord's help, 
that sin, that offense doesn't happen again, or at least not as often. And then thirdly, genuine gospel repentance is volitional. It's volitional. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus had an encounter with another tax collector called uh, named Zacchaeus. I'm sure you've heard of him before. Uh, Zacchaeus had stolen a lot of money from the poor, and he had abused his position of authority to take advantage of people. And Zacchaeus was so grieved, we're told, in the text of Luke 19, that uh, he said, I, he says to Jesus, I will give half of my wealth to the poor and pay back those I have cheated four times as much. And as a result of that demonstration of repentance, Jesus said, today salvation has come to your house, Zacchaeus. And so those who are generally re repentant, they, they work to reshape their will to choose God instead of sin. Repentance is being so sorry that with the Lord's help, we're going to do our best to not do that sin again. And it may take time to, to sort of extinguish that sin from our lives. We, we may see a gradual decline of that sin before it's gone, but there's progress in genuine repentance. There's a, there's a definite downward slope and frequency as the believer is uh, practicing the spiritual disciplines and walking with the Lord. So genuine repentance is mental, it's emotional, and it's volitional. Now there are some important implications that I want to make sure you get before we move on to the next point. And, and these implications come from uh, verses 14 and 15. And what I mean by an implication is I want to draw a direct line from what the text is saying to real life for us. What's this mean in real life today? So here's the first implication, and that is anyone who professes faith in Christ but demonstrates no repentance is not a true Christ follower. We see this throughout the scriptures. Uh, and you've heard me say this before as well, not every profession is a conversion. And what often happens in this case is the individually, excuse me, the individual mentally understands the gospel in theory or they're familiar with the gospel. They, they've heard it at Christmas, they've heard it at Easter, but they still refuse to to give their heart to the Lord by forsaking their sin and really trusting in Him for their salvation. They, it, or is, is the old sort of metaphor that you probably have heard says, the information of the gospel hasn't made the journey from their head down to their heart. This is no surprise to Jesus, who uh, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 said, there's going to be many on the day that he returns to earth who claim to have known him. But Jesus will say to many of them, depart from me, I never knew you. Next, the second implication that I think verses 14 and 15 make here that we've got to really uh, not miss, I guess would be a good way to say it, and that is this. Anyone who preaches a gospel without repentance is preaching a false gospel. 
False teachers are difficult to detect because they tend to emphasize just enough of the gospel to make it sound true while leaving out the parts that might offend people. And, and by the way, false gospels and false teachers are talked about throughout the New Testament. And uh, those of you that have listened to me preach for the last couple of years throughout the New Testament and some of the different epistles, you've seen that it was a problem in, I think, every church that Paul wrote to. And we know that in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, in John's letters, he talked about false teachers and false gospels as well. And so it was a problem from the very beginning of the church, and it's still a problem today. And this, too, is no surprise to the Lord because Jesus and the apostles all warned, as I said, uh, all warned the early church about false teachers and false gospels. And they still exist, sadly, today, and they have in every generation of the church. What we need to do is to be discerning. We have to listen closely to see if the whole gospel is being presented, not just part of it, the parts that sound good. More on this later. Here's number two on your outline. Number two, true believers make Jesus their preeminent priority. True believers make Jesus their preeminent priority. And if you, after you write that down, if you would follow along with me as I read verses 16 to 20 in Mark chapter 1. True believers make Jesus their preeminent priority. Now let's look back at the text. So, starting in verse 16, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Okay, so point number two in your outline, true believers are, they make Jesus their preeminent priority. Now, if you would notice in the text where it says in verse 16 that he saw Simon and Andrew casting an into the sea, for they were fishermen. The fishing industry was huge on the Sea of Galilee. It was the major occupation that people had in order to survive. It was also a very rough and rugged career, very blue-collar. Fishermen would often fish at night, casting nets that were 15 feet in diameter. And while this career was lucrative for some, most fishermen were poor. Now, contrary to what the text appears to say, this isn't the first time Jesus met his disciples. The other gospel records tell us that several of the apostles had placed their faith in Jesus beforehand, and they had a relationship with him while they were still working their day jobs, in this case, while these guys were still fishermen. And so it wasn't until John the Baptist was arrested back in verse 14 that Jesus called his disciples to work with him full time. Now, having said this, one of the many lies the adversary likes to spread is that the calling of the apostles is really just meant for pastors and missionaries and others going into full-time vocational ministry. But on the contrary, 
I think these verses show us that they apply to all believers. Verses 16 to 20 show us what it looks like for believers to submit everything to Christ's Lordship and follow Him. Regardless of whether it is your job, a relationship, a hobby, a material possession, anything that prevents us from following Christ needs to be surrendered to Him. Now, let's pause the video here, and I've got another discussion question on your handout I'd like you to talk about or think about, and it's this. What are some ways we can show Jesus He is our first love or our top priority? What are some ways that we can show Jesus that He is our first love or the top priority in our lives? Think about that. Talk about that for a minute, and I'll be right back. Here's some ways the uh, disciples demonstrated their commitment to Jesus or how they demonstrated he was their first love and a top priority in their lives. And, and these aren't the only ways to do so, but they are worth considering. These would be some ways. And so these are, this is letters A, B, and C in your handout. Uh, Jesus expects to be a priority over, letter A, your comfort. He expects to be a priority over your comfort. Now we see this in verse 17 where Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men. This is obviously a reference to evangelism and a play on words because the disciples were vocational fishermen. Part of following Christ is leading others to Christ. I think the broader truth being asserted here is that following Christ means we will have an uncomfortable life. We, if we are submitted to Christ's lordship as we should be, we will be pushed and nudged out of our comfort zones and called to do things that we would not normally do because they're risky or out of our comfort zone. But Living an uncomfortable life for Jesus also means, and praise the Lord, we'll live a more meaningful one here on earth. We, we will get to be used by the Lord to touch lives with the gospel. And that's priceless. To leave a mark here that will last beyond our lifetime after we've passed on into eternity, to leave a mark on people, a spiritual mark, that is that is priceless and that's worth being made uncomfortable most christians cringe at the thought of doing evangelism because it's uncomfortable however god's heart behind evangelism is to use is to use believers to tell unbelievers that he loves them and he wants a personal relationship with them just as the lord used believers to reach us all of us can name somebody who shared the gospel with us and that helped lead us to faith in Christ. And so the Lord wants to use us to do the same for others. On the other hand, those who idolize comfort aren't usually used by the Lord and they don't grow as much spiritually, if at all, because they want to be safe. They want to be safe. 
Next, letter B is your career. Jesus expects to be a priority over your career. We see this in verse 18, and that these men left their nets and they followed him. Now, remember, they already had a relationship with Jesus. They already knew Jesus. But the apostles put down, and they model how to do this. They model how to put down being identified and defined by their career so they could pick up their new identity in Christ. Followed, the word that's used in the, uh, well, translated in the English text, uh, follow me, and then we see it in verse 20 where it says, um, they left their father Zebedee in the boat in, with hard servants and followed him. That word followed is a, it's a fascinating word in the original text. In the, in the Greek, it, it means this. It was used frequently in the Gospels to simply say they attached themselves to the person of Jesus. They were personally surrendered to his summons, and they accepted his leadership. Again, the word follow, and you might want to write this down, the word follow in the Greek text means they were attached to the person of Jesus, personally surrendered to his summons, and it accepted his leadership. Imagine, if you would, with me for just a moment, what your gravestone will look like after you leave this earth, after you die. You know, your family and friends will have a funeral service for you. Your body will be put in a casket. It'll be lowered down into the ground, and there'll be a, a tombstone, a gravestone put over the grave where you're buried with your name and your date of birth and your date of death. And then a lot of families like to have some kind of inscription put that summarizes your life. Well, imagine using the definition for follow on your gravestone. So, so it, would, it, would, it would look like this. Here lies John or Mike or Jennifer or Michelle or Carrie. He was attached to Jesus, surrendered to his summons, and accepted his leadership. If, if you were to die tomorrow, would everybody at your funeral say that the predominant characteristic of your life was that you follow Jesus? Would, would they be able to say in some words or another in or in other words that you know you were attached to the person of Jesus? personally surrendered to his summons, and it accepted his leadership in your life, would they, would they be able to say that? Or would they primarily say at your funeral, oh man, he was such a great athlete, or he was, a gr he was an avid sports fan. We know he loved his team. Or, boy, she was, she was great at fashion, or she was a wonderful cook or a great singer, would they say things like that predominantly? You see, separating our career from our identity is very important because the Lord wants our mindset to be, I'm a Christ follower who happens to be an engineer representing him in the oil fields. Or, I'm a Christ follower who just happens to be a teacher representing him in the school system. 
You see, our identity in Christ is supposed to come first, and then whatever we do for a living is second, third, fourth, way down the list, and that is that career is that position is to be held loosely. Because that could change at any moment, just like it did with the disciples. They used to be fishermen, but now Jesus had called them out of that vocation into full-time ministry to become fishers of men. Now, the Lord may not call every Christian to quit his job. In fact, he usually doesn't because he needs people out in the marketplace to represent him. However, he does want all of us to be full-time ministers who are willing to change vocations or locations whenever he asks. So if the Lord says, hey, I want you to quit your job and I want you to move out to, to Iowa or New York and I want you to serve me there and do this for a living instead, we should be willing to go, done. Sign me up, Lord. I'll do it. That's the kind of obedience that he wants from us and that's the kind of obedience that he demonstrated for us in the gospel of mark next uh, jesus expects to be a priority over letter c our family our family it says they left their father zebedee in the boat apparently this was a family business and it was quite common in these days for sons to take the family business over when their father passed away Thus, these men leaving the family business was a big deal in first century Middle Eastern culture. We're also told in verse 20 that they had hired servants. This is a little clue that their business was also quite profitable. Most fishermen could not afford to hire servants. And so we can conclude because they had servants, this was a really good business that they were leaving to follow Jesus into full-time ministry. They were leaving a good living behind, a really good living. So following Jesus probably cost them an affluent standard of living and made some waves in their family as well. I, I think what we need to remember is this. When Jesus saves someone from the consequences of their sin, he calls them to a total allegiance that is all-inclusive, entirely exclusive, and often intrusive. This kind of relationship is simply called discipleship. It's discipleship. Well, let's talk applications. I've got two quick ones for you. Uh, first of all, I think this text calls us to distinguish excuse me, the true gospel from false ones. We need to, to distinguish the true gospel from false ones. Uh, another scheme the adversary likes to use is polished speakers in large churches with a buffet of ministry programs in order to spread false gospels. They may even use the Bible and quote scripture at that church. Now, this, this is not to say, I am not saying all big churches are false churches with false teachers. I'm not saying that. There are plenty of legitimate, large, 
churches doing great things for the kingdom out there. It's not the size that matters, though. And this is where people often get deceived. They get deceived by, they, they want to go to a church that has a big facility, lots of programs, awesome children's ministry, a, a, a professional band on the platform, and they, they want all that, and those things take preeminence over the content coming out of the church. That's how the adversary deceives people. They get, they get hooked in, to use the fishing metaphor, on all the nice external things that a church offers instead of listening closely, first of all, to the content of the message coming out of the church. Is that church preaching the true gospel? And if it is, and it happens to have a great campus and you know beautiful facility and lots of programs and, a, and a, an excellent sounding worship band, then that's fine, so long as the content is on par with Scripture. So the next time you hear the gospel presented on the radio, a podcast, or in a book, or maybe see it on the internet, ask yourself, is the person here preaching the whole gospel or just the parts we want to hear? You see, taking repentance out of the gospel might bring more people to church but it won't bring people to the Lord. Here's the second application, and that is to make him Lord of all, or he is not your Lord at all. You probably heard me say that before, and I'm repeating it because it's really important. Make him Lord of all in your life, or he is not your Lord at all. Jesus doesn't want part of you or part of your life. He wants your whole life because he gave his whole life for you. True believers make Jesus their preeminent priority. And to prioritize means if there's a conflict between your comfort in the Lord, you choose the Lord. It means that if there's a conflict between the way you spend your money and the Lord, you choose the Lord's way of spending money. It means that if there's a conflict between your schedule and the Lord, you choose what the Lord wants. That's prioritizing. Two things that conflict, I will choose the more important one, what the Lord wants in every area of my life. And that's, that's discipleship. And so I just have to ask, are there any areas of your life that are conflicting with him in which you need to surrender? The gospel is simply this. God loves you and he wants a personal relationship with you through his son, Jesus Christ. And in order to make this possible, he sent his only son to die on the cross for you and he resurrected himself three days later. If you will repent of your sin and trust in Christ alone for your salvation, you can have forgiveness, peace, and eternal life with him. If you have questions about how to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ, I'd love to speak with you privately. You can reach me by email or by phone. Well, before we close uh, and I sign off, uh, let me uh, leave you with this quote from an early church father named Augustine. Uh, this, this quote 
marked me the first time I read it a few years ago, and so I'm trusting it'll impact you as well. Augustine once wrote this, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. Now, keep in mind, Augustine wrote this just off the top of my head, and I don't quote me on this, I believe he ministered somewhere around the second or third century. So even then, he was seeing people split the gospel, take the parts out they don't like, so they could still tell themselves they have eternal life. Well, just want to leave you with that quote to kind of sum up what we talked about, and I hope you're staying healthy and safe at home. Please stay tuned to our website and our social media channels for updates on when we can resume having public worship services. Until then, thanks for tuning in, and may the Lord bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.